Uh, let's pray. <clears throat> God, we thank you for your word. We pray tonight that it would just uh, touch our hearts and uh, impact us just the way we see you, the way we see it. We pray that you would be glorified in our midst. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So Second Peter is uh, it's going to be Peter's last letter. We've, we've covered at this point, you know, we're kind of wrapping up the overview of the Bible. We're wrapping up overview of the New Testament. We covered uh, the Gospels, the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church. We covered all of Paul's epistles, uh, both to churches and individuals. Now we're getting into Peter's epistles. And uh, basically where we're left after tonight is we have the epistles that John, the disciple John, wrote to the church and uh, the epistle that the apostle Jude wrote to the church and then the book of Revelation. And so we are uh, very much in the home stretch. But Peter, as he's writing this letter, this is Peter's last letter to the church and he writes with that awareness. He talks about, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to lay aside my earthly dwelling soon in this book. He's aware of the fact that his, his death is coming and persecution against Christians is heating up at this time. And so it carries a lot of weight as a book. And he writes it kind of like, if you remember when we were in Second Timothy, or even if you can remember back to January in the book of Deuteronomy, well, back to February in the book of Deuteronomy, um, you know, when Moses is writing or when Paul is writing, and they know it's their, their last book. And there's a sense of sobriety that comes with it. And just that, that urgency on their part of, I have one last time to convey you know, a lifetime worth of ministry and of serving the Lord. And if I want to remind people of what that looks like in a condensed form, here's what I've got to offer. And so that's where, Peter, that's where Peter's at, okay? So that's where we're going to find ourselves tonight. Um, incidentally, just it bears mentioning, I guess, um, there's a sort of a current train of thought that goes around that says Peter didn't actually write the book of Second Peter. And... It's kind of, if you have nothing better to argue about, I guess you could conceive that, you know, in verse 1 it says, Simon Peter, a bondservant of Jesus Christ to those who perceived the faith of the same kind as ours. And uh, if you have enough PhDs, you can look at that and say, well, obviously that must not mean Simon Peter. It must mean something different. Um, and so the argument that gets thrown around is that this book is, if you read it in the original Greek, it's written at a very high level. It's kind of more of a saying that a very educated person would write and historically, we don't think Peter would probably have been super educated. So they say, well, it's impossible that he couldn't, he couldn't have possibly learned to write that well. And that's fine, except we forget, or these people will forget that, you know, when Peter would go before the priests in the book of Acts, it says they were astonished at the way they spoke because they were uneducated men. And so during Peter's, you know, his, his speaking ministry, people said there is I can't wrap my head around how a man that uneducated could speak with that much clarity and insight. And the, the answer was he had been uh, surrendered to Jesus Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so if that was true in his speaking ministry, there's no reason why it's not true in his writing ministry. And so we really have no, and, and that's honestly, that's like the only argument that you can present for why Peter didn't write the book of Peter. And it's not a good one. So, uh, but you'll hear it thrown out sometimes. So just to be aware of that. That's what people say. But as Peter's writing this book, he's trying to remind us of just some final things. And um, in verse, chapter 1, verse 12, you just sort of get a nice little summary. He says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present in you. 
I consider it a right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. He's saying, okay, I want to remind you guys of things that you probably already know. Peter doesn't take this opportunity to say, okay, I want to come up with some profound insight. I want to blow your minds. I want, I want to rock your world. He says, I'm going to remind you of things that if you've been serving the Lord for a while, if you've been reading the Bible, these shouldn't be brand new truths, but they should always be fresh truths to our heart. And so that's where Peter's going to go with this book. He's going to try and remind us of three things specifically, three exhortations. And the book is three chapters long. It divides pretty evenly into those chunks, but there's a little bit of overlap. So he wants, us, he wants to remind us to grow. He wants to remind us to grow in our relationship with the Lord. He wants to remind us to be watching out for false teachers, to, to not get suckered by every person who just claims to be a Christian or wants us to give them their money in the name of Jesus. Uh, and he wants us to be looking for the return of Christ. And so that's what we're going to kind of see just one at a time tonight. Peter wants us to grow. He wants us to watch out for false teachers. And he wants us to be looking for the return of Christ. And so with that... Um, we're going to just open up the letter. Chapter 1, verse 1. If, it, if you're not there yet, you probably aren't going to get there. So um, it starts off, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that... His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You could spend an entire sermon on this chunk right here, but we're going to carve through it. Um, Grace and peace. We've talked about this in Paul's letters, right? It's a common greeting in, in the early church, and it combines sort of what the, what the Jewish world would say with what the secular world would say, which is, you know, they would say the grace of the gods be with you, and the Jewish people would say the peace of God be with you. And, and Paul and Peter just put them together because the grace of God brings the peace of God. And you, it's always in that order because you'll never have real peace in life until you've experienced real grace. And so they're always needed in our lives. And so Peter's just pronouncing a blessing. Hey, may these things be multiplied in your life. I don't want to see them just added to your life. I want to see them exponentially increase in your life. And grace and peace be multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I want you to know and experience this grace and this peace. Seeing that, verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us, what's that word? everything pertaining to life and godliness. The divine power of God has given us everything we need for this life. Everything we need to walk in godliness. And it is not, the, and, and so we can, you know, convince ourselves that, well, you know, I'm just, I feel like something's lacking in my life, whatever else, it's not the Lord that's lacking. Right, if something's lacking in your life, if there's a lack of victory, if there's a lack of, of discipline, a lack of whatever, it's not on the Lord's end. Because the Lord has provided you with everything that pertains to life and to godliness. So if you're lacking something, what do you need? You need more of the Lord. And Peter's going to encourage us in this. If you need something, what do you need to do? You need to grow in the Lord. Grow in your relationship with the Lord. Let the grace and peace of God be multiplied 
to you. And he says, he's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. We have true knowledge, right? We don't believe in kind of truth or or your truth or my truth or uh, social truth. We believe in truth. There's a true knowledge of God and it comes through the glory and excellence of God. You don't know about God because you're smart. You don't know about God because you figured him out. You know about God because he is glorious and he is excellent and he's revealed himself to you because he has given you everything that pertains to life and godliness because he is giving his grace and his peace to you and multiplying them. And because of that, we have true knowledge of the glory and the excellency of God. And he's gonna say by these things, we have, uh, he's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that we can become partakers of the divine nature. By all these things, by all these, I mean, he's outlining the grace of God, the peace of God, the power of God, the knowledge, the glory, the excellence of God, all these things. By all these things, God has granted to us precious and magnificent promises so that we're partakers of the divine nature. And we get to experience the nature of God in our lives. And so verse five, he goes on, he says, now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence. He says, okay, so because of what God's done, what should we do? Here we go. Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your knowledge, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. I'm reading that out of the New American Standard. There's a couple versions that I think read it a little better. Um, just it's, it's a little more straightforward, but they'll say, you know, for this very reason, with all diligence, add to your faith. And so that idea of, okay, what are we going to do now? We believe in God, so we want to express that. How do we express that? Well, add to your faith virtue. Or New American Standard says moral excellence. Add to your virtue knowledge. To your knowledge, add self-control. To your self-control, add perseverance. To your perseverance, add godliness. To your godliness, brotherly kindness. To your brotherly kindness, add love. And then verse 8, we get a promise from God. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, or if these things are yours and abound, they render you neither barren nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If these things are yours, if you, if you want to live a fruitful life for God, then, then here's the outline. Here's the roadmap. Here's the compass and the plan and the directions. Add to your faith these things. Now, what are these things? These things are not actions. He doesn't say add to your faith prayer and fasting and add to your faith evangelism and, and shaking, you know, you know, going out and then spreading the gospel. And if you don't share the gospel, to, if you share the gospel to 12 people a day, then you're going to be fruitful. He said add to your faith virtue and knowledge. And even the knowledge that he uses here is not knowing about God. It, it's the root is the Greek word gnosko, which means like an experiential knowledge. So he's not talking about no more facts about God and get a PhD in divinity and go to some sort of seminary. No, no, no God, right? Don't, don't worry about the no. He's not saying you've got to know about God. Know God personally. And as you're knowing God personally, then what comes after that? Self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. 
Peter's encouraging this church, hey, hey, I'm going to die soon. So what do I want you guys to do? Add these things to your life. And if these things are added to your life, you're gonna not, you're, you won't be barren. You won't be unfruitful. What's he telling them? Just keep growing. Right? These, is not, these, aren't, you know, these are not uh, quantifiable things. If he would have said add evangelism, or really if he would have said any kind of actionable thing, then there would be a point at which we could check it off. And say, well, okay, I, I did it for today. I'm good. I, I checked the box. No, no. When will you be done adding virtue to your life? When will you be done adding kindness or love or perseverance? You'll never be done. And so what he's doing right here is giving us something that we can always, at any point in time in our lives, be stepping in. We can always be walking in this promise because you can always be increasing. He says, if these things are yours and are increasing then you're not going to be barren or fruitful. He doesn't say if these things are yours and you're perfect. But if you're growing in these things, there's a promise from God that fruitfulness is going to be a part of your life. So what's the exhortation? Keep growing. Keep drawing closer to the Lord. Keep knowing the Lord more personally. And then we'll jump down, verse 12. We already read it, but he says, Therefore, I'll always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right. As long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter says, okay, guys, these are not like earth-shattering revelations. These are things that, he says, you already know them. And you're established in them. Sometimes you come to the word of God and it's going to correct you. And it's going to say, you're doing the wrong thing, you need to stop. You're doing the wrong thing, you need to change course. Sometimes you come to the word of God and it says, hey, just keep going. Keep growing. Keep increasing and abounding. Right? If you're established in the truth of the love of God, that's fantastic. Keep being more established. Right? If you're being built up, we talked about it last week, as a living stone in the temple of God, that's great. Keep being built up. If God's using you, that's great. Let God keep using you. Right? He's saying, hey, I want to remind you of these things, so stay focused, know the basics, know the Word of God. You're only going to grow in understanding the promises in the Word of God if you understand the Word of God. So he's going to say, grow in these things. How do you grow in knowing God? Well, God has sent you a message about what He's like. And so if God has texted you, a message of his character and his nature, and you say, I want to know God more, well, then read what he said. And so Peter's saying, this is, you know, I want you guys to just keep growing. And then uh, basically the end of this chapter, he's going to just kind of call to mind a little bit of, hey, bear in mind that I have some authority to say this. I'm not just spouting off. He says, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's saying, hey, look, I'm not just spouting off right here. I was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ's ministry on earth. I saw him, right? I mean, imagine, you know, we, we were talking about it on Sunday. And there is that reward for us who believe without having seen God physically. But there simultaneously would have been a huge blessing to have been one of the disciples who got to say, yeah, I was there at the feeding of the 5,000. 
right? I was the one, you know, Peter, can, Peter is the guy who can say, I was the only person other than God himself who ever walked on water. And his friends could say, yeah, you were also the one who sank. He could say, you know, I'm the only person who got interrupted by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit because I was talking too much at different points in time in my ministry. I watched God bring people back to life. I watched him heal people. Peter had a personal experience with God. And because of that, he's saying, hey, just remember I'm not just giving you what I want to tell you. I'm not, I'm not encouraging you to grow because it's soft and easy and I'm trying to you know, ease out of, of telling you hard things. I'm saying this is the meat. This is the good thing. This is the real thing. If you want to be faithful, if you want to bear fruit in Christianity, he's saying I am telling you this as an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. I saw the ministry of Jesus lived out and this is what matters. And so he goes on, verse 19, he says, So we have the prophetic word, make more sure to which you do well to pay attention to, as the lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. He's saying, look, we've got the words of God, and you would do well to pay attention to them. Verse 20, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So he's, he's going to start to make a transition here. All right, he's been talking about you need to just keep growing in your walk with the Lord. Keep growing, keep, keep growing. He says, if these things are yours and abound, then you won't be barren or unfruitful. He says, I want to remind you in verse 12 of these things. And so he's going to say, hey, these prophetic things have been given to you. And by the way, they are not subject to your interpretation of them. You never read the Bible, you don't read the Bible and say, what does this, what does this mean? How do I want this to, to read? What do I want this to mean to me? No, no, what is God saying to me? You don't get to determine what the Bible says to you. You get to determine whether or not you're going to listen to what God is saying to you through the Bible. You don't read the Bible, what do I want out of it? You read the Bible, what does God want to say through it? Right? We don't come to Scripture to make ourselves comfortable. We come to Scripture to know the Lord. And so he's, gonna, he's giving us that train of thought, and now he's going to use that to bridge into chapter 2. And he's going to say in chapter 2, verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Verse 2, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So chapter 2, he's going to shift gears, and he's going to urge the church. He's going to warn the church, hey, be on the lookout for false teachers. And he makes an interesting comment here, and I think it's worth pointing out. He says, in their greed, they exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. The things that these guys are teaching is nothing new. He's saying false teachers are here. They're going to come. Be watching out for them. But they're not going to give you something new. They're going to give you old lies, just repackaged. And what he does then in chapter 2 is he goes in, in back and just kind of backs up and gives examples. He talks about when the angels initially fell. And Satan's initial sin was that idea of, I will ascend. And talks about it in Isaiah. Satan said, I'll ascend, I'll be like God. And that's really what every false teaching has ever been ever since. 
I can do this. I have the ability, I have the knowledge, I have the power, whatever it is, it's all the same line. I can go up. I can improve myself. Christianity is the only religion in the world that teaches, no, you can't go up. God came down. Came down for you. And so there's false teaching that has always done this. And he's going to go on, he's going to talk about Noah. He calls him a preacher of righteousness. He's going to talk about the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, And if you remember from the book of Genesis, the flood came and destroyed the world. In the time of Noah, the judgment of God came on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah during the time of Abraham. And he's, Peter's giving us this warning, hey, false teachers are going to come. But, so you need to watch for them and understand there's a judgment coming for them. So any false teacher who, who tries to tell you that you can ascend, that you are super awesome, that you can, you know, I mean, it's in, they're, in, they're in the Christian books. They're in the Christian bookstores. They tell you you can have your best life now. And they tell you all these things about you were destined to reign and, and all these, you know, these cute things that make you feel so good and warm and fuzzy. And, and you, know, you don't have to deny yourself. God wants you to be happy. God created you to enjoy good things, so obviously being unhappy is not good. So you should do whatever makes you happy. They're all the same lie. And so he's given us sort of two things here side by side. He's saying, one, be watching out for them. Two, don't be paranoid by them. They'll be there. They're, they're always, there's always going to be false teachers. He says, don't worry. Uh, and he goes on and he talks about, in the examples of Noah and Lot, the examples of the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah, he makes the point that the Lord pulled the righteous out before the judgment came. And in verse 9, he, well, he says, verse 7, And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. He says, look, God was able to pull Noah and his family out of the world during the flood into the ark. He was able to pull Lot and his family out of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he says, the Lord knows how to rescue you from temptation. You don't need to worry about uh, it's not your job to fix the church. It's not your job to, you know, he's saying your job is to, what, keep growing. And don't get paranoid about, oh my gosh, you know, am I, well, I listen to this person, I listen to this podcast, and then this person crashed and burned. Is that, what does that do for me? Am I safe? Am I saved? Am I whatever else? You know what? The Lord can rescue the godly from temptation. And it's interesting that he calls him the godly, and if, if you look back, he calls specifically Lot. A righteous man. He says, the Lord rescued righteous Lot. And we're not going to get into it tonight, because, but if you read the book of Genesis, Lot doesn't get classified in my book as righteous. Lot does some creepy stuff. That is, you, you read it, and then you kind of like, you know, it's in text. Sometimes you just read it, and then you close the book, and you walk away, and you kind of have that pause moment of like, oh my gosh, what did I just read? Lot, did, Lot was not like, the greatest guy, you know, I didn't win the Nobel Priest Prize and the Nobel Family Prize, um, but God defines him as righteous here in Second Peter. And so what's Lot righteous by? What makes Lot righteous? It wasn't his actions. It was not his actions. What is it? It's the grace of God. And so what do we do? Grace and peace be multiplied to you, right? Lot gets called righteous in the eyes of God, and that's not an excuse for walking in sin, but it is an encouragement. Hey, if you're serving the Lord and you're stumbling, 
God's grace is, is there to still make you righteous because you're not righteous because of what you do. God's grace is what makes you righteous. Um, so basically, the rest of chapter two, he goes on and just kind of expounds that idea of watching out for false teachers and they're gonna come, they're gonna have all these, they're gonna be smooth, they're gonna be slick, they're gonna come into your church, um, they're gonna come into your potlucks and your pitchins and whatever else, but you know what? God, God can take care of it. And then chapter three, he's gonna shift gears one more time. Uh, and it's, it's kind of a natural flow, but he says three verse one, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So, all right, guys, this is my second letter, and I'm stirring you up by way of reminder. I'm reminding you of things that you've heard before. If you've sat and listened to Bible teaching for a period of time, you, these things should be, you should, have at least be, you should be familiar with them, okay? I want to remind you of them. So you can keep growing in them. Verse three, he says, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. He says, in the last days, mockers will come. And they'll say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues. They'll say, you know, it's just been a long, slow, continual process of slow change over time. God's not coming back anytime soon, right? It's evolution, man. Why would you believe that God's going to come back, that things could change in a snap? We've never, God hasn't come back yet, has he? You Christians have been saying Jesus is going to come back any moment for 2,000 years. Well, is he or isn't he? Well, what's the, what's the answer to that? Well, we're 2,000 years closer to being right when we say it could be today, right? We've, we've knocked off 2,000 years of days that it wasn't, so mathematically, we are closer. Um, but he says, hey, you know what? What's a sign of the end? People are going to say, there's no way God's coming back right now. We can do what we want. He says, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed and the earth was formed. People have walked away from the word. They've walked away from the book of Genesis and how God has revealed his plan for creation and his plan for our salvation. And they say, no, 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 no. Jesus isn't coming back anytime soon. I'm free to do what I want. Verse eight, he says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So he's going to remind us of a couple things here. He says, all right, look, God's timing is not your timing, right? Remember this, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. There's a couple points he's making with that, or there's at least one. There's possibly more. Um, and then he says, the Lord is not slow about his promise. If you're, if you're waiting for Jesus to come back and you're excited about the fact that I want Jesus to come back, and you think, man, would God just get this show on the road, right? We are sick and tired of waiting. He says, the Lord isn't slow, at least not in the way that you guys count slow. Um, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is not 
slow. He's not slacking. He's patient. He's like the, the perfect hunter, right? He doesn't get bored. He doesn't have to go to the bathroom. He's, he's not falling asleep in the stand. He's just waiting. And when the right time comes and the right opportunity comes, he knows how to save the right soul that's ready to receive the gospel. And so you say, man, this is taking forever. He says, no, there's, there's, there's one coming. And, and so we're waiting. But also, he says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. Now, very much so what he's saying is, hey, remember that God's timing is not your timing. God sees a bigger picture, bigger perspective. God's doing something. Incidentally, there are people who also think, and I would say I'm one of them, that this might be an outline of roughly the way the world works. So if if a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years, what do we see in the Garden of Eden? We see the Lord make the earth in seven days. He made it for six days and then rested on the seventh. And there's... uh, there's some, it's reasonable to wonder if maybe the earth's going to endure under sin for 6,000 years and then have a thousand-year millennial kingdom, if you believe in a literal millennial kingdom, which I do, where Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne and basically the earth will get its rest from sin. And so there's, and this isn't a new teaching, there were rabbis before the time of Christ who said we're going to have 2,000 years before the law, and then 2,000 years with the law, and then 2,000 years with the Messiah, and then 1,000 years of rest with the Messiah. And so this isn't like a new teaching, okay? But uh, I think it's definitely a possibility. And even if you look in in the book of Acts, uh, Peter talks about, hey, the Holy Spirit just came down. Like Joel said, the Holy Spirit's going to come down in the last days. Well, if the Holy Spirit came down somewhere around, you know, 33 AD, if you look at a thousand years as a day, that's right about the 4,000 year mark. So what have you got in the week? You've got Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. When did the Holy Spirit come? Basically, Thursday morning. Thursday morning is the first time in the week when you can say we're in the last days of the week. And so it's a theory, and, and it may just be that, but I think there's quite the possibility. I think it should cause us to live with that sense of urgency, like, hey, maybe Maybe, just maybe, the Lord's getting really, really close. Maybe, just maybe, we should live like it really, really matters. Verse 10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Sorry. Since, verse 11, all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So he says, remember this. The Lord's coming back. He's coming back soon. You don't know when and I don't know when, but he's coming back soon. So what kind of person ought we to be? And it's a rhetorical question because he already told us. What kind of person should we be? We should be a person who's growing. In what? Well, he told us. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. What should you do if God is coming back tomorrow? You should keep growing. You should keep saying, hey, I want a better, I want the grace and peace of God to be multiplied in my life. Right? So what manner of person ought we to be? How should the knowledge that Jesus is coming soon How should that impact our lives? How should that impact our priorities? 
How should that impact the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the people we hang out with? How should that drive us? And so he's saying we're looking for it. We're hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. This is always kind of a fun thought to me. You can speed up God's return. Because it says in Scripture that the Lord knows exactly how many people are going to, you know, there's, there's a point in time at which basically the last person who's going to get saved before the rapture is going to get saved. And at that point, the church can get taken out of the way and the, Holy, the presence of the Holy Spirit will be removed and that's when the Antichrist will come to power and we'll see the great tribulation. And so he just said, hey, you, you want to hasten the coming of the day of the Lord? Lead people to the Lord. Somewhere out there is a person who's going to be the last person to get saved before Jesus comes back for the church. I don't know who it is. I have no idea who it is. There's a chance it could be somebody right here in Madison. So what per, man or person ought you to be? Well, you've got to be a person who's looking for ways to share the gospel with people. And so he's going to go on, uh, verse 14, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. So, since you're looking for the coming of the Lord, and I think this is, this is helpful because, you know, sometimes we talk about end times and we talk about the great tribulation and the judgment of God and all these things, and you can get in this, like, sort of tense train of thought. Like, oh my gosh, you know, what's, what's that going to be like? And what's that going to, it's going to be all these, you know, apocalyptic movies that we've seen made, except on steroids and all this kind of stuff. What, so, therefore, since Jesus is coming back, and since it could be very soon, since it could be before where this teaching is over, since we're looking for these things, since we're excited about the return of Christ, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Peter's not writing this a hellfire and brimstone letter, right? He's getting ready to die, and he wants to encourage the church, hey, keep growing. If Jesus is coming back tomorrow, if Jesus is coming back right now, what do you want to do? You want to have the peace of God in your life. That should be what's driving us, is the peace of God, as a reflection of the grace of God that we've already received. And then verse 17, he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this... Well, sorry, back up. Verse 15. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. He told us this earlier, but as God waits to return, as Jesus is waiting to come back, what's he doing? He's extending the invitation of grace. A little longer, just a little more, right? Because there's one more person who needs to hear. One more person who might be willing to respond. So God is not being sloppy. And sometimes we can, you know, we can look, and if you're not careful and you zero in on the problems of the world, you can see all the problems of the world. And you can say, oh my gosh, God is taking forever. Would he please get around to it? And he says, no, no, no. The patience of God is salvation. Right? God is extending salvation in case somebody else wants to do it. Right? In case he, you know, in the book of Genesis, he's talking to Abraham about when the Israelites will eventually go into the land of Canaan. He says, they're going to wait for 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites isn't yet complete. And so this people group, the Amorites, they're going to spend four centuries walking in sin. Why? Because they're, as far, because they're evidently, in the eyes of the Lord, a couple people who needed a chance to repent. So he extended his grace. And so the patience of the Lord is salvation. Right? I'm glad that the Lord waited till I was born. I'm glad he waited till I accepted him. I'm glad he waited, you know, every time I've sinned and messed up and done something stupid. I'm glad he waited long enough for me to repent. 
The patience of the Lord is salvation. And so verse 17, as he's wrapping up, he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. So guys, Peter's saying, I'm getting ready to die. I wanted you to remember to grow, to watch out for false teachers, and to be looking for the return of Christ. And verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That word knowledge is the same as what we talked about in chapter 1. It's that experiential knowledge. Grow in the grace of God. Grow in knowing God. So grow. Watch out for false teachers. Don't, don't get suckered in. If they're trying to tell you that you're awesome and you really don't need Jesus, he just makes life nice. No, that's not true. You desperately need Jesus. And be watching for his return. Right? He's saying grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then his final benediction, to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So what do we do? So we keep growing, right? And I hope that's an encouragement to all of us. You know, sometimes we can, you come to the word and, and you know, the word of God is perfect. And so you see yourself against a perfect example. And you can just be painfully aware of how short you fall, Right? And so sometimes it's good, sometimes it's, it's necessary to look at that standard and say, yes, I am horribly inadequate, and I desperately need the grace of God. I desperately need God's Holy Spirit. I need the power of God. Sometimes, though, it's really good to come back and say, you know what? God's grace is still good. He is still doing a work in my life. And so if you're serving the Lord and you see an encouragement, hey, keep growing. Stay in the Word, right? If you're, if you're being faithful, that is phenomenal keep doing it, right? Know the Lord more. And if these things are yours and abound, you won't be barren and you won't be unfruitful in, in the work that God has called you to. So Lord, we thank you for the book of Second Peter. We thank you that we have just Peter's example of a life lived for your glory with all of its flaws and flat spots. Uh, we get to watch the power of your Holy Spirit transform him. We pray that we would get to see that same transformation in our hearts, God, that we would go from, uh, from cowards to evangelists, from, uh, from self-focused to Christ-focused. I pray that you would just help us to keep growing, like Peter said, to add these things to our faith, to, to really recognize and trust that you've given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. We thank you for that, God. Help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.